This battle has been going on for some time now with uh, this group of police basically protecting Wong Tai Sin police station, which has been besieged, and also residential quarters here. Police have been firing back with lots of, uh, of CS gas, lots of tear gas. That's Rob McBride. He's an Al Jazeera correspondent who has lived in Hong Kong on and off for the past 30 years. And this year, his reporting has thrown him right in the middle of some of the biggest protests the city has ever seen. There was this one day where Rob had to wear his gas mask on camera. It makes him sound muffled, but you can still hear the urgency in his voice. At the moment, what seems to have happened is that the sheer weight of numbers moving forward. The protesters got within a certain range of the police line and then decided to charge. It's early August, and he's standing in the middle of a street that's packed with hundreds of protesters. They're throwing stones at a police station and the officers' homes behind it. The police are in full riot gear, firing tear gas cannons directly at the crowds. And it's under full attack now. Uh, It's uh, quite scary. I mean, we used to uh, put on the gas mask when there was a threat of uh, pepper spray. And pepper spray, by comparison, now seems uh, like like kid stuff. And the Hong Kong protests are well past kid stuff. On August 11th, a police officer allegedly shot one woman in the face with something called a beanbag round during a protest in the Chimsa Choi shopping district. She lost an eye. That helped mobilize a massive sit-in at Hong Kong's international airport the very next day. On August 12th and 13th, crowds of protesters blocked the immigration counters. They stacked trolleys together as barricades. Hundreds of flights had to be canceled. Overnight, Hong Kong's internal conflict went global. And then on August 18th, just when the city seemed to teeter on the edge of full-scale violence, we saw Hong Kong's biggest protest yet. And it was peaceful. There seems to be something uh, unpredicted, something unprecedented happening every day. I'm Malika Bilal, and on this week's episode of The Take, we're talking about how Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement has expanded and found new strength, new members, and new momentum. All while Beijing is stepping up its threats, possibly getting ready to invade the city it considers its own. Hong Kong is normally a pretty stable city. Hong Kong ticks along quite nicely. It's a very efficient place. It's been an economic bridge between Beijing and the world. China invested hundreds of billions of dollars there last year. It is, uh, it is very safe. There isn't a huge amount of crime. It has good public transport. There is very little corruption, almost no internet censorship, especially compared to mainland China. And you have a very highly developed uh, civil society. You have NGOs, you have a free press. I sound like an advert for the the, uh, the Hong Kong (laughs) Tourism Board here. It all sounds good, doesn't it? (laughs) 
but what you don't have in Hong Kong is uh, universal suffrage, proper democracy as we know it. What you don't have is a government that is necessarily going to represent your views. And the leadership in, in the city, the way you live and where you protest and where you demand change can basically ignore you and there's nothing you can do about it. You cannot vote them out at uh, uh, five years down the line. People in Hong Kong have railed against this for years. But once in a while, the cause catches fire, and it feels like the whole city is in the streets. The catalyst this time was an extradition bill on the floor of Hong Kong's Legislative Council. It would have allowed Hong Kong residents to be sent to China for trial. Chief Executive Carrie Lam relented to the protests two weeks after they began in June. She suspended the bill but the protesters wanted withdrawn entirely. And besides, by then, the protests were about more. Ending police brutality, kickstarting democratic reform, and opposing Beijing's influence. Interestingly, on some of these big demonstrations, you, it's all the young people there, and young people are, are protesting. And you will see uh, quite a few older folk, I mean, people who the 40s, 50s, 60s, and you'll start talking to them. And, and then they'll tell you, actually, it's the first time I've come out protesting. And I've come out because, you know, my nephew or my son is out protesting, and I want to support him. And you have, there's a one group that has suddenly sprung up, simply called the Mothers of Hong Kong. It's calling out for all the mothers who have enough already of what happened the other day. You will see police who are beating all these kids who are just like 14, 15 years old. You would expect it's the older generation who would be, you know, uh, more reluctant to go out and protest. But some of the older generation is actually responding to seeing youngsters out in the streets, almost as though maybe we should have done this 20, 30 years ago. 20, 30 years ago. That was a pivotal time for Hong Kong. You could argue that's when this political crisis started. In 1997, when the British handed the city over to mainland China. The Royal Navy brought the flag of the United Kingdom to this territory. The White Ensign has just been lowered over this shore base. But the values that it has stood for will, I hope, remain in this place. The handover of Hong Kong marks the setting of the sun on the British Empire. When the governor sails out of Hong Kong on board the Royal Yacht Britannia early Tuesday morning, it will signal the end of 150 years of British rule. Colonial rule was over for Hong Kong, but at what price? Nobody knew. This was Hong Kong's last British governor, right before the handover. You can't snuff out people's aspirations for freedom and openness and accountability. Those are going to exist, and uh, unless uh, the new government responds sensibly to them, inevitably over time, uh, they'll risk creating precisely that sort of political turbulence which they rightly want to avoid. The one country, two systems philosophy was born. Beijing signed a basic law promising to preserve Hong Kong's limited freedoms and capitalist economy, at least for 50 years. What does that mean for the year 2047? Keep that date in mind. We'll get back to it. What we do know is that Beijing promised Hong Kong citizens they would be allowed to elect their own chief executive in the meantime. That never happened. 
Instead, Beijing delegated that power to a committee made up of Hong Kong's businessmen, professionals, and elites, mostly people who support the national government. This election committee would not choose the chief executive, but would uh, shortlist two or three people who then the people of Hong Kong could vote in. But effectively, because it has this conservative pro-Beijing bias, all of the people who would be on that shortlist would be basically pro-Beijing conservatives. So it wouldn't matter who the people voted for. You can have this pro-Beijing conservative person or this pro-Beijing conservative person or, surprise, surprise, a third pro-Beijing conservative loyalist to, to China. Every few years, there have been political protests. The most recent ones in 2014 were massive. Tens of thousands of pro-democracy activists marched in the streets with umbrellas. They're good for protesting in the rain, protesting in the sun, and for shielding against police projectiles. Maybe that's why the umbrella has become the symbol of the pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong. As the 2014 protests wound down, thousands of protesters held signs promising, we'll be back. And so they are. From the UK to China, President Tang at the time promised us that we are going to have general elections for both our legislative council and the chief executive. But nothing was, not, not, none of that was happening. Five years ago, we did the same thing, asking for the same thing that we had promised. But Rob says this time is different. The protest movement of five years ago ended because basically it ran out of steam. And also the tactics that people used five years ago of actually occupying whole streets. I mean, that was exhausting, exhausting work. And trying to hold on to streets and living there and, uh, and having enough people that you wouldn't then be uh, ev evicted or cleared away by the authorities. Uh, it was all very tiring. And also it proved to be very unpopular in the end. It causes huge inconvenience throughout the city, transport is disrupted, people can't get to work, and eventually public sympathy, I think, drained away. What's different this time, I guess, is that nothing's changed. You've had five years since that took place. And when that was ending, you had people in Hong Kong saying, oh, thank God it's ending. Now we can finally do something. We can have some dialogue and get to the, the root cause. Because it's the, the, the problem isn't people sitting in the street. It's why they're sitting in the street. It's all of the, the disenchantment with the lack of a proper a, a democratic system. There's all the other issues like uh, the inability to afford a decent uh, roof over your head. Just get a mortgage on an apartment in the most expensive uh, property market in the world, etc. But for the past five years, nothing fundamental uh, has been done to address all of these underlying issues. And we, you, now we see the consequence of that. Rob, there's one phrase that keeps coming up in connection to these protests, and it's be water. Where does that come from? It comes from uh, uh, the martial arts legend, Bruce Lee, uh, who was one of Hong Kong's most famous sons from Kung Fu movies of the 1960s, 1970s. I said, empty your mind, be formless, shapeless, like water. The full line is, be, be water, water, my friend.
And it was almost a, uh, a kind of a quasi-cultural uh, philosophy of be water, that in martial arts, you can be very strong, you can be a torrent, uh, you can surge through, and you can be gentle, and you can uh, slip away and evaporate. And so it, the movement is, it, it tries to uh, adopt this philosophy of be water. So you, it morphs and changes. It, it's difficult to predict what you're going to do next, where you're going to go to and have another protest, if it's going to be a big protest or a small protest. It has to be said, it's quite catchy as well. And a lot of these uh, protesters we know are young and trendy and uh, kind of hip. Uh, and so, so it, it's, it does strike a chord with a lot of the protesters. Uh, and it does seem uh, to, to, to work. They will go to one place, there'll be a build-up, the police will be there, and suddenly you know, you'll expect any minute there's going to be tear gas being fired and projectiles thrown, and instead of that, they'll just drift away. They'll leave the barricades that they've set up and they'll move off and go to somewhere else. So it uh, does, um, the, the strategy does seem to work. There have been hundreds of thousands of people involved in these protests, more than a million on some days. That's a lot of protesters flowing through the streets at once. How are they coordinating with each other? They're using social media an awful lot uh, to a far greater degree than they were five years ago. Because if you're in, involved in organizing one of these protests and it turns violent, then you can face all sorts of consequences and uh, potential punishment and prosecution. And then we, you know, we we've, we interviewed one protester who's uh, basically uh, she was a, t- a teenager, a student, and her mom and dad didn't like her going out to protest and says, "Oh, mom, can't I go out?" No, you can't. No, you can't. Go out. So she basically. <laughs> sat in a back bedroom with two or three devices and just spent the, the whole protest basically connecting up different groups through one from one device to another. She was, you know, a, a back bedroom revolutionary. Uh, and so you do, so you get people using all sorts of social media to, in very creative ways. You have also, when on that actual protests, an awful lot of sign language being used. Uh, people, uh, you know, you see people uh, signaling back and forth, like bring more umbrellas or we need a first aid kit over here or uh, wait stop we're going to go back again no no more people come this way we might change direction and a lot of this is done with sign language and you know with these messages being flashed back and forth up and down it's actually pretty incredible when you think about it the amount of communication and organization happening within this leaderless movement but sometimes it does all come apart There was a video that went viral during the airport sit-in. It showed protesters attacking someone they thought was an undercover police officer dressed in plain clothes. We later learned that he was actually a journalist. I think people were shocked at the way the journalist was uh, treated. They used cable ties to lash him to an airport luggage trolley and so on. And I think that there was a, a lot of uh, conversations online about, you know, this is not what we started this movement for. We, we shouldn't do this. And I think people do realize it loses an awful lot of public sympathy uh, when, you, when you resort to violent acts like that. Um, an awful lot of people, the majority of protesters, would not condone the use of violence. Some protesters would say we have no other choice but to resort to this kind of violence because we face a, you know, because of the the system we are up against. This is a revolution. 
When they stormed into the Legislative Council on the 1st of July, which seems like a very long time ago now, one of the uh, protesters scrawled in Chinese characters, uh, uh, something that's very poignant, very interesting. They scrawled, you taught us that peaceful protest is useless. On Monday, Twitter shut down hundreds of fake accounts based in mainland China that were spreading misinformation about Hong Kong's protests. They say it was a campaign backed by the Chinese government. And if the accusation is true, it's part of a growing list of steps China has taken to undermine the protests. China, I think, is uh, rattled by this, is worried by this. Um, we've heard about the buildup of paramilitary forces and the army on the border, in the border city of Shenzhen. Um, I don't think that means there's going to be any, uh, any move imminently to move mainland troops onto the streets of Hong Kong, because that, that will be a very big step. But it does mean that uh, the authorities in China uh, probably would have uh, the forces there if it felt it had to, it had to do that. And it will be viewing things very closely. It's very important for China not to be seen to be giving way to protests in the streets. It would be standing firm with the, the Hong Kong government, telling the Hong Kong government to sort this out and the police maybe to get tougher to eventually uh, win back the streets. Speaking of getting tougher, the army's released some videos. I'm sure you've seen some of these. They're clearly full-on propaganda. There's patriotic music, there are tanks in the streets. This video has been released by the Hong Kong garrison of China's People's Liberation Army. And given the timing and the context, it's clearly aimed at those thinking of taking part in further protests. It starts with a zoom in from space directly down onto Hong Kong. And then it plays out like an action film full of pumping music, quick cut edits, and dramatic shots of soldiers, training, explosions, guns. The big section in the middle of this three minute video focuses in on how the army would deal with protests and riots. How are protesters in Hong Kong perceiving all of that? It, it, is, it is quite bizarre to see these videos. Some of them may be unnerved by it. China's objective is to uh, make this a warning to people of what could happen. A lot of other people would simply dismiss it as propaganda. Um, uh, but it would be, and I, I think a, a, an awful lot of people probably don't think we, we're at that stage where China is going to do that. That bears huge risks um, politically. Um, it would undermine the business confidence of Hong Kong. It would impact very negatively on China's uh, reputation uh, abroad. And it, might, it may well backfire. I mean, you could turn a crisis into a calamity. I mean, instead of having running street battles, you could have a you know, full-scale uprising by people if, if you did that. So it carries all sorts of risks uh, to, to actually put troops onto the streets. I think if the Hong Kong government was about to collapse, or worse for China, if there would be you know, some threat of a contagion that somehow this disorder could spread to mainland cities, then uh, China, you know, if it felt this was a last resort, if it had no other option, then it would do that. But uh, I don't think we're there yet. You called Hong Kong home for, I think you said, almost three decades. So what's it been like for you on a personal level watching these protests? 
It's quite sad seeing the, the seeing the city, uh, you know, go through this uh, kind of spasm. At times, you almost feel as though it's ripping itself apart, and it's difficult to know what the solution is. The solution to Hong Kong's political crisis has escaped its people, its leaders, and Beijing for more than 20 years. But they're all coming up on a deadline that can't be avoided. And that's 2047. That's when the 1997 agreement expires. One country, two systems. It was a nice catchphrase, but the people who signed that agreement in 1997 are no longer alive. Many of these protesters will still be here in 2047, when Beijing could legally impose censorship and the authority of the Communist Party. The ambiguity that helped to make Hong Kong so vibrant is hurtling toward an expiration date, and it's threatening to tear the city apart. That's The Take. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilbe with Alexandra Locke, Morgan Waters, Ney Alvarez, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Natalia Aldana is a social media producer. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Special thanks to Rob McBride and Joel Lawrence. We'll be back next week. <laughs>